You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Good morning, peace be with you. Before we dive into this fascinating and challenging passage, will you join me in prayer? God, as we sang earlier, you are mighty, you are great, but you're also good. We know you're a good father, that you delight in giving good gifts to your children. And so I pray for us, the gift that I want to ask you for this morning on our behalf is Lord, we're so busy and we've got so many things going on and things we're stressed about, worried about, preoccupied with. And I pray for this morning, for our time together, that as we sing, as we read your word, as we talk about your word, as we pray, Lord, that we might be reminded, not just of your greatness, but of your plan, of what you're doing in this world, of the big realities of life that this passage points to. And the great hope that you've given us through your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I've been talking about the Bible a lot with my kids recently, especially since VBS. VBS was awesome this year. My kids came home. Their teachers were awesome. Uh, Papa John, as we like to call him, John Roberts and Mama Deb. They did a wonderful job teaching. And so we've had a lot of conversations, renewed conversations about the Bible. And one of the things that my kids find absolutely fascinating about the Bible is how long people lived before the flood. You know, 930 years, 920 years, 940 years, things like that. Well, recently I was talking with one of my kids about this and they asked me, Dad, if you could live to be 900 years old, would you? That's, that's kind of a hard question to answer. Like, well, I need some more data before I can make, make a decision. Will I have the body of a 900-year-old man? Or will I still have some, you know, strength and vigor? Well, I think we could pick. All right, well, what would you and your, your siblings and your mom still be alive? Or, or would it just be me? Because it's probably going to have some effect on, on that question. So we had this, it was a weird, strange, fun, fascinating conversation uh, with one of my children. And shortly after that conversation, I was reading a book and I read about this research foundation started in 2009 in Silicon Valley uh, that goes by the name of SENS, S-E-N-S. And the mission statement of SENS is to prevent and reverse age-related ill health. In other words, it's to stop aging and stop dying. The chief science officer of SENS, Aubrey de Grey, he said, what I'm after is not living to a thousand. I'm after letting people avoid death for as long as they want to. What a promise, what a possibility to avoid death for as long as you want to. As you can imagine, They've gained a lot of support over the last several years. And, you know, there's, there's all these different studies even coming out now that lifespans are going to increase 
even in the next 100 years to maybe 120, 130, 140 or beyond. And so my question for you is, if it were an option for you to choose, how long would you choose to live? Would you want to go 900 years or maybe 500, maybe 200? Or maybe you're happy with 80 or 90? We are in a series looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you're new here or you're new to the book of Ecclesiastes, I have to tell you that this book, it does not give you tips or life hacks to make your days smoother. That's not what the book is about. I mean, Ecclesiastes, it's kind of like that friend who will say and bring up really awkward things when everyone's having a good time. Ecclesiastes is kind of like that. It's a book that shouts at you and forces you to to stop and consider and think about your life and rethink how you're thinking because it deals with the big questions of life. Why are we here? What is our purpose? What's the meaning of this all? And what, what should we think about death? And here in Ecclesiastes 7... It's jarring when you read it because in in verse one, the teacher writes, a good name is better than fine perfume. He's he's kind of moving into offering some Proverbs in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that, that first part is just like classic Solomon. Like there are a few things better than having a good reputation. It it could totally come out of the book of Proverbs. And so you're reading along and you think, yeah. And then the next line it's like a sucker punch or maybe even better, a, a gut punch because he says not a, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death is better than the day of birth. What are we supposed to do with that? I've been present at the birth of a number of children and I've also been to a lot of funerals. And I have to tell you, if I had to choose one or the other, I'd rather be there at the day of birth than the day of death. What is the teacher getting at? What what is he prodding and provoking in us? Well, in verse 2, he expands on this teaching just a little bit. He says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone And the living should take this to heart. See, when the the teacher says the day of death is better than the day of birth, I don't think he's saying it's empirically better or more enjoyable. I think what he is saying is that there are certain lessons that you can only learn at a funeral. And really, there are more lessons for life to be learned from a coffin than a crib. More lessons from a wake than a wedding. And the teacher is challenging us here. And he's saying, listen, death is the destiny for everyone. We are all going to die. hundred years from now, not one of us will be left, most likely. And the teacher says, so let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what this means. Let's think about that. Now, I imagine these words were challenging to hear when they were first spoken But how much more challenging now? I mean, we live in a culture that's obsessed with youth and vitality and young and beauty. I think the last thing most people in our society want to do is sit around and listen to an old guy talk about death. 
you know, throughout most of human history, this is where we kind of live. We inhabit this, this strange kind of a new, new phase in human history. Throughout most of history, death, it's been a part of everyday life. Like you were acquainted with death. And it wasn't just your grandparents that you'd bury. It's your parents. It'd be your siblings, likely. Maybe your spouse, your wife and childbirth. Even your children. I mean, think about this. Just 200 years ago, four out of five people died before the age of 70. And the average life expectancy was the late 30s. It's 200 years ago. The world's changed. I mean, we, we live at a point in history where, where death, for the most part, it's just, it's removed from daily life. Now people tend to die in facilities, kind of quarantined away from the young and the healthy. Many of us have never even seen a dead body. We don't want to think about death. And <laughs> I heard someone who said many in our day even view death as just kind of the unfortunate lifestyle choice of an older generation. It's just detached. And yet the teacher says, just because you can't ignore it doesn't mean you should ignore it. Instead, we must take it to heart. There's more to learn in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. And so today, what I want to do is I want, I want to take you to the house of mourning for a little bit. Engage in a practice that the ancients called memento mori, which, memento mori, which is a Latin phrase, which means remember death. And I want to go there because I think there are some gifts there that we really need to receive. But I also want to say before we do that, I recognize that for some of you here, death is more real to you than anything else in the world. I mean, you're haunted by it. Maybe you've recently buried someone close to you. Maybe you or someone you love has a terminal illness. And for you, you don't need to be reminded of your mortality because you think about death every single day. And if that's you, I just want you to know my hope is that by the end of our time together, that you would be filled with a deeper and more profound sense of hope and freedom than you've ever had before. My guess, though, is that for the majority of us, we don't want to think or talk about death at all. We want to avoid it. Even as Scott was reading the passage today, you were thinking, this is kind of a downer. Really? I haven't been to church in a while. I show up today and it's a sermon on death. Can't we just avoid this? Can't we skip over it? It's so negative. And I just want to say to you, if that's you, I think that underneath so many of our struggles, so many of our anxieties and our addictions and our compulsions, be it drugs or alcohol or work or just busyness, this, this living at a pace that, that exhausts you. I think underneath so many of those things is what the author of Hebrews calls our lifelong slavery to the fear of death. And I think when we don't actually stare the reality of our mortality in the face, that doesn't mean that it's still not shaping our life. And so we're going to go there. And really, there's just two gifts that I want to show you that come in the house of mourning. The first is the gift of wisdom. We see this in verse 4, when the teacher says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Well, what's he saying here? Well, let's be clear about what he's not saying. If you look, he doesn't say wise people just go to funerals all the time and fools just go and party and feast all the time. That's not what he's saying. He says the heart, the heart of the wise and the heart of the fool. The heart of the wise can go to a funeral and can absorb the lessons, receive the lessons there. But the heart of the fool, they're the people who say, I just don't do funerals. To which I always want to respond, eventually you will. All of us will. So remembering death, one of the gifts is it keeps us from being Foolish. And again, we've got to be so careful here because the teacher is not saying we should just sit around all day and, you know, just think about dying. That's not what he's saying. I mean, he said earlier, kept in context of the books, there's a, a time for laughter, a time for joy, a time for building up, a time for birth. But he says there's also a time for tearing down. There's also a time for grief. There's also a time for burying those we love. And the fool is the person who just wants to try to avoid all of those things and never think about it. Just run from pleasure to pleasure. The fool never stops and asks the big questions of life. Like, where did we come from? You ever think about that? I mean, we're all here. Where did we come from? And why are we here? And what are we supposed to do with the 60 or 70 or maybe 80 years that we're given on this earth. The fool doesn't ask those kinds of questions. The fool just keeps busy and actually tries to avoid those kinds of questions. And what happens for the fool is when they eventually come face to face with the hard, challenging, painful parts of life, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond. They become untethered. I read this quote from the actor Jack Nicholson a few years ago, and it's, it's stuck with me. I think this kind of encapsulates some of what the teacher is saying when Nicholson said, I used to live so freely. The mantra for my generation was, be your own man. Go to the house of feasting. I always said, hey, you can have whatever rules you want. I'm going to have mine. I'll accept the guilt. I'll pay the check. I'll do the time. I chose my own way. You know, it's Sinatra. I did it my way. I charted my path. He says, that was my philosophical position well into my 50s. But as I've gotten older, I've had to adjust. I'm naive emotionally. Can't bear the number of funerals you go to once you get older. I have to find a way to adjust to loss or sentence myself to a life of grieving. See, the teacher is telling us to avoid contemplating our death is to walk the path of foolishness. Because foolishness in the Bible, the fool is someone who wants to live contrary to reality. And conversely, the wise person in the Bible is the one who recognizes reality and adjusts their life accordingly. One old German theologian actually defined wisdom like this. He said, wisdom is being competent with regards to the realities of life how things really are, how things really happen, how things really are, and what to do about it. There's a lot of people in our day who are trying to bend reality to their will. A lot of us do this from time to time. 
We don't like something in the world or our life, and we just kind of wish and hope and try to bend it to the way we want it to be. But the wise person is the person who can say, this is the way it is. And how should I respond, and how should I live in light of it? And nowhere is this more true than when it comes to our mortality. You know, in Psalm 90, the great psalm of human mortality, Moses writes, he says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think the American church is starving for wisdom. We have a lot of knowledge. We have a lot of information. We have a lot of skills. We have a lot of technique. But do we have wisdom? Moses says, the path to wisdom begins with numbering our days. How? How does that make us wise? Well, the, the answer to that, answers to that question are countless. And I'll tell you, if you were to sit down this week for 15 minutes a day for seven days and just thought about the fact that you are immortal, that you are going to die, it would probably bring a lot of wisdom into how you're spending your days right now. I'm going to give you two, but I think there are a lot. One, learning to number our days, it guards us against triviality. Learning to number our days gives us perspective. I mean, think about this week that you, you just had. What, what were you stressed about? What's got you worked up? What's keeping you up at night? What are you, you giving your, your mind's attention and your heart's affection to? Some of it's probably really important, but some of it's probably, you know, you, you wouldn't want to say it out loud at community groups. There's some parts that you just leave out. You wouldn't, you wouldn't share and answer that question. Now, now imagine you were told you have 200 days left to live. I wonder, how would you spend them? And how many of those things that, that seem so important right now would be put in perspective? The fact of the matter is, we, we might have more than 200 days, we might have less, we don't know. But what we do know is that our days are numbered, every single one of us. And we can actually ballpark, you know, how many days we might have left. Do you guys want to know how many days you might have left? If you're under 40, you're good. You got a lot of time, Lord willing. If you're 40, you got maybe 14,000 days left. If you're 50, you've got about 10,000 or, or less. If you're 60, you've got about 7,000 days left. If you're 70, on average, you have about 3,000 days left. If you're 80 and you're here, you're doing great. Like you, you are living on borrowed time, but way to go. Like you beat the odds. Now, of course, that's a ballpark, that's an estimate, and the reality is that tomorrow any one of us could get hit by a bus or an aneurysm. And so that's the real challenge of that passage from Psalm 90 is we can try to number our days, but in the end, we don't really know how much time we have left. A good friend of mine was diagnosed with a terminal illness 10 years ago. He tells the story that after his diagnosis, he had so many people reach out to him and express 
condolences and how sorry they were for him. I mean, he was only about 50 when he got the diagnosis and like, you're so young. I can't believe this would happen to you. And he says, you know, over the last 10 years, a lot of those people who expressed well wishes and condolences to him, they've died of a heart attack, car wreck. We, we, we're called to number our days, but we don't know how many days we have. And, and my point is this, that that should cause us to remember our days are finite. They are numbered. It should give us perspective on how we spend them. Moses calls us to this. David calls us to it in Psalm 39. He cries out to God in prayer. He says, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. And I would say when you're willing to pray that prayer, it's going to lead you to asking some really important questions like, what am I giving my life to? How am I spending my days? What do I really value? Remembering death, it it guards us against triviality, but it also guards us against grandiosity. Remembering death reminds us that our time is limited and life is short, but remembering death also means reminding ourselves that we are creatures and that we're not indispensable. And that we're not the center of the story of this world. When we die, there are people really close to us. There will be a lot of tears and grief, maybe that lasts for months and years. And there will also be a lot of people that said, oh, he died? That's so sad. All right, where are we going to lunch? See, remembering death, it, it, it keeps us grounded and the fact that we are not God, we, we are not in control. Not one of us asked to be born, and yet we're here, and not one of us can control our death, can stop our death. It keeps us humbled. It ke- keeps us centered with the task God's put before us. You know, as I was studying, I, I read about uh, a tradition in ancient Rome that after generals would... would uh, you know, conquer foreign territories or experience a great victory in battle, they would come home and there would be a huge parade for the generals. And before the generals would go, all of the riches, you know, the gold and the jewels, all of the things that they captured, it would go before them and the crowds would be cheering, seeing what the generals captured in war. And then behind them would be a couple of slaves that would hold over their heads a, a laurel crown celebrating their victory But at the same time, those slaves would whisper in the ears of the general throughout the parade, memento mori, remember you will die. Remember you will die. Remembering death, it it keeps us grounded. It guards us against the narcissism of our day. You know, the, the Hollywood dreams that we can do anything and conquer anything and, you know, live for yourself. No, no, no. It reminds you that you've been put on this earth Everything you have is a gift, something God has entrusted to you, and it calls you to steward it well. I just, I wonder how many of our problems in life come because we fail to recognize our creatureliness. Ephraim, Ephraim Radner, he's an Anglican theologian, 
in talking about memento mori and the importance of remembering our mortality, he writes this. He says, one reason that adults cannot stick with things like their marriages and their children and their jobs, the generations of their flesh and community, their ecclesial church commitments, is because we have failed to learn the patience that comes with recognizing our lives as given and in order, in time, and their places. This might be a hard word for some of you, and it might be a, a very different way of thinking about life. If your entire life you've been raised to believe, just do whatever you want, set your mind, you can conquer the world. I mean, I'm, I'm all for ambition, absolutely. But when we remember our death, we remember we're creatures and God's the creator and nothing, we don't have anything that we did not receive and all that God's given to us, he's entrusted to us. And a life of faithfulness is being faithful with what's right before you. Now, the grandiosity of changing the world or saving our nation or turning this or fixing when most of us, what we really need to do is be faithful with the relationships right before us. When we remember death, it makes us wise and it, it leads us on a life of wisdom. And if Ecclesiastes was the only book of the Bible we had, we could stop here. Say, you are going to die. Think about it. Be wise. End of story. But thank God, and I mean that, that Ecclesiastes isn't the end of the Bible. One of the things we've said again and again in this series is that Ecclesiastes asks the question that the rest of the Bible answers. And so while the wisdom here is really good, it's not enough. And I would say if you're actually willing, if you're wrestling with faith, with what you believe, if you're actually willing to go and sit in the house of mourning, if you're willing to go there and sit with your mortality and just think about it, it's going to stir some things in you. It's going to stir in you, not this, oh, death is just, you know, a friendly gardener or something like that. It's going to stir in you a hatred of death. Because when you sit there and think about it, think about the meaningful relationships you have. The spouse of 20 or 30 years, the children you love. If the wisdom right here is all we have, then we just say in the end, they're dead, and that's the end of it. And it leads us to being kind of wise, maybe, but very cold people. The God of the Bible, the God of the universe, yeah, for something much more profound. You know, in my study this week, I was reading about one old Stoic philosopher who kind of lived just kind of in this world, this kind of remember death because it makes you wise and it teaches you how to navigate life, which is so true. But he said, what harm is there when kissing your child goodnight to whisper tomorrow you will die? I thought, well, there's a, there's a lot of, I mean, I guess there's some wisdom, but, but I don't want to do that because I love my kids. Because I don't want to live believing that this life is all there is and then it's lights out. And then at the end of history, the great victor over everything is death. I refuse to believe that. Life is too beautiful. Relationships are too meaningful to just think it's all a random accident and at the end it's lights out and everything goes cold. 
And so when you sit in the house in the morning and you wrestle with these questions, you start going to the Bible saying, I've got to figure this out. And what you find when you go to the rest of the Bible is number one, death is not natural. It's not natural. And what I mean by that is it wasn't a part of creation at the beginning. When God created the world, death was not a part of it. Death is the result of sin. It's the result of our mistrust of God and rebellion from him. God, who's the author of life and sin, we say we, we want to be cut off from you. And that's why on this earth in its present state, the minute we're born is the minute we start dying. Because we live in a world that has been invaded by death. It is like an invasive species that devours everything in its path. The Bible tells us that, that our hatred of death is not irrational, It's actually the most rational thing in the world. Because the storyline of the Bible, and really this is one way you can think about the Bible, is in Genesis 3, death enters the world. And in Genesis 3, God makes a promise that one day death will be no more. And from Genesis 3 onward, the rest of the Bible is God's plan to confront death once and for all. It's not just a book filled with morals for how we should live. It's an account of how our God is dealing with death in this world, his commitment to it. And we see it in the Old Testament. We see these promises, but we see it most clearly in the fact that our God is so committed to eradicating death from this earth that he took on human flesh. As Hebrews 2 said, He tasted death for everyone. The author of Hebrews, he he continues, he writes that since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, he, that's Jesus, he too shared in their humanity. He became one of us. God became one of us. Not only that, but he also died. And he died so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And there's some mystery there and there's there's some theological challenges. We're not going to get lost there. I want you to see the big purpose. The reason God took on flesh and came to earth was so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, which is the devil, and... Verse 15, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Are you afraid of death? Author of Hebrews says we all are. It's terrifying and it controls us. And yet Jesus came to set us free. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. So as Christ, he was the first one to be resurrected and transformed. He's the first. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy 
to be destroyed is death. You want to know what Christianity is about? It's that right there. It's about our God who took on flesh, who came, lived, faced death, died, so that through him, he might defeat the last enemy, which is death. And he gives us these promises, promises that all the pain and the sickness we experience, the aches and pains, the, the creaky backs, the sore bones, the, the tumors, the heartache, the loss, the tragedy, the tears, all of it will one day be over. That's the promise. That's the ark. And yet, I wonder for how many of us those promises really guide us in the day-to-day. When was the last time you really sat and just dwelled on the promises of God? I mean, we're so caught up. Our lives are just so busy. Going to work, running kids to practice. You got to pay the bills, cook the meal, cut the grass before the rain comes, do the laundry. And we're just, we're just running all of the time. And in all that busyness, it's easy to forget that we're going to die. And I will say, when we forget that we're going to die, when we don't live with that healthy death awareness... It's just easy for us to put the promises of God on the shelf and not really think about them. They're like an encyclopedia that we can reference if we're having a bad day instead of being the fuel that drives us day by day. And when you want to look throughout, if you look throughout church history, you want to see the people that helped change the world today. They are the people who were fueled by their hope for tomorrow and the hope that God has given us through his promises. You know, Paul says in Romans 8 that creation is groaning. And he says, and we too groan for that last day. And I wonder, do you groan? Do you ever have that moment? Do you ever look at this world? And I mean, we're so caught up in activism and like we want to solve all the problems of this earth. And, you know, that's great. Solve all the problems you want, but we're not going to solve them all. And I would say even as a society, we don't even know how to look at things and just groan. And say, God, please. But it's there when we can live in that place, when we can start groaning and pleading with God, finish what you started, defeat the last enemy. That's when we start really living from a place of hope. Hope's not just this far-off thing. It's fuel for today. And I I think that's one of the reasons the American church is so sleepy. One is because we're so busy, and two is because we think Christianity is primarily about something that happened 2,000 years ago. I think that God was really active a while back, and he kind of set us up like a grandpa. You know, he put this retirement, set the money aside, and now he's gone, but he's got no God is active today, and he's made promises about tomorrow. And those promises should shape how we live today. Well, how do they shape us? How does the gift of hope change our life day to day? I would say hope 
It enables us to receive our lives for what they are as a gift. Hope enables us to receive our lives for what they are. They're messy, they're beautiful, they're full of wonder and joy, but also tears and loss. We have moments in life that take our breath away, and then we have moments of just profound brokenness and sorrow. All in all, our life is it's wonderful, but it's woefully incomplete and it's fleeting. And hope enables us to receive it. And say, I can receive my life for what it is because it's not the end of the story. Hope, I think, actually gives us the freedom to be okay with losses, not to be okay, but to let go. Hope enables us to show up and loving faithfulness with those closest to us. You know, I read a number of books about death over the last several weeks, looking towards this sermon, and one of the best books I read was by a man named Todd Billings. He's a professor at Western Seminary in Holland, Michigan, and he, he wrote a book years ago on union with Christ, which was wonderful, and then in 2012, he got diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer of the blood, And he recently wrote a book called The End of the Christian Life, and it's wonderful. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Whether you're young or old, whether you're dying or you're in tip-top shape, it's one of the greatest books I've read in the last couple of years. And in that book, he talks about hope. He says, true hope does not involve closing over the wound of death. Instead, even the wound can remind us of who we are. Beloved, yet small and mortal children of God, bearing witness to the Lord of creation, who will set things right on the final day. Our lives are like a speck of dust in comparison to the eternal God, and we cannot be the true heroes of the world. But we can live lives of service, loving God and neighbor, in a way that does not allow the fear of death to master us. And the first time I read that, I was like, oh, I want to think like that. And I want to live like that. And it wasn't just his intellect that got him there. It's also the fact that he's had to remember his death every day. And it's fueled his hope and it's fueled a life of love. And I I think one of the clearest indications of are we living in hope is how we live in the day-to-day. Are we being faithful with what God's put before us in our relationships? Are you being faithful to your spouse? And I don't just mean what we typically mean. Are you showing up in their life? Are you being faithful to your children if you have children, to your friendships, to your work? Being faithful to the call to forgive people. If you're struggling with bitterness or a lack of forgiveness, remembering that you too will die, man, that can do wonders for you and being free. Maybe you you just feel self-absorbed all the time. Remembering death and the hope we have, it can set us free, almost make us self-forgetful so that we can truly love those before us. As we move towards communion, I want to say if you're here and you're not a Christian or maybe your parents are Christians and they bring you here and you don't know what to think about all of this, I just want to say it's not an accident you're here. 
God brought you here. And you're being fed a lot of things, a lot of conflicting messages in the world. So a lot of people in the world who say it's just an accident. We're here for a bit of time, then we all die. And we're basically just very expensive worm food and complicated worm food. And I just want to say, no, you were created by God in his image. And he has hidden eternity in your heart. That's why no one can say, you know what? I'm just ready. I don't care if it's lights out. All of us, we long and ache for eternity. And God took on flesh and he took your sin, which is the source of all death, so that you might have life everlasting in him. And I want to encourage you to seek him out, to put your faith in him. And what that means, here's this, something we do every week. This is for Christians, but the night of Jesus' betrayal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. Talked about his death. He said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. This is the cup of my blood. It's going to be poured out for you. And then he told us as his people, his followers, do this in remembrance of me. And so really, this is such a great picture of the Christian life. This is what we do. God gives and we receive. And we take part in the body and the blood of Christ to be reminded not just that our sins are forgiven, but this, this meal also looks forward because we're told on the last day, which is really going to be the first day of eternity, the last day of this present age, after Christ brings everything and subjection under his feet, what do you do after a great victory? You feast. And the Bible tells us that on that day, we are going to feast. And so this meal reminds us of what he's done, but it also, we, we eat this anticipating the day when he will return and put all things right. And so if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to eat, to be reminded that you are forgiven and also to find fuel and strength for hope. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this, but in Christ who gave himself for you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.